This week we're going to start lesson one, and I am hoping to get through this in just two sessions. And it's a big chunk, so we're going to move fast. But what is the Trinity is what we're going to go over. Okay, so we're going to jump around in the Word of God a, a bit. We're going to find it's going to be useful. Um, so the, the question we need to answer first really is what is the Trinity? What does it mean, right? So try, it's three. Uh, Trinity is, it's the word that we use to describe God's nature. It's kind of in general. He exists as three individual, equally divine persons. And that's probably the best word you can use to describe Father, Son, Holy Spirit as person. Okay, so they're each individual, separate persons, but all equally God. So we have the Father, God, the Son, God, and the Holy Spirit, God, yet still one God. But I kind of gave it away earlier. I was going to pose it as a question. Does the word Trinity appear in the biblical text anywhere? The answer to that question is no. Right? So that's the point of contention for a lot of people. So then where do we get the word from? It has to come from somewhere. Um, and it started to be used by early theologians who having the fullness of the canon were studying it and were able to see all of the attributes of each one of those persons and then say upon investigation, this person, Jesus, displays the attributes of God. This person, the Holy Spirit, displays the attributes of God. And for the Father, it's kind of an easy one because we see the Father being expressed as God throughout the text and nobody debates that. So um, early theologians were drawing this conclusion very early on. Um, we get the word Trinity from a Latin word, Trinitas, which just means the same thing, three in one. And, but there's an earlier Greek word, which would be trias, but neither of these words still, even in the old languages, they're still not found in the biblical texts. Now there's a big misconception, and this is something I've heard from contending with people in the cults, is they'll go to the Council of Nicaea in 325 and they'll say, Christians made up the Trinity in 325. And it's absolutely incorrect. I mean, there are Facebook, not Facebook, what's, uh, YouTube videos made that just spew this garbage and they say it all comes from Nicaea. Now, the reason Nicaea becomes so popular is because Nicaea came together as a council under Constantine to deal with Arianism. Arianism was an early heresy that said that Jesus wasn't God. So out of that council, we actually have what comes, the Nicene Creed, which describes the Trinitarian faith well. So what they will say is, oh, at that council made up of these bishops, headed by a guy who wasn't even a Christian, Constantine, we, are, we have fabricated Trinitarianism. It's just not true. We have it much earlier than the Council of Nicaea, as early as 180 AD with Theophilus of Antioch, and then even Tertullian, the famous theologian, in writings as early as 210 AD. Okay, so the word Trinity being used to describe God comes right after the canon starts to kind of come together. And if you know this, one of the other kind of heretical things people say about Nicaea is, well, the Bible was put together in Nicaea and they decided on the canon then. That is absolutely incorrect as well. We actually don't have a good date for when the canon came together, but we know that it was early in the second century. So throughout the first century, the letters are being written 
and they are widely accepted throughout the church as canon. And by the early second century, theologians are already using what we have now as the New Testament. So the Old Testament had been settled. The New Testament by the early second century is canon. All right, so I want to read you something really quick, and it'll kind of give you an idea how early this Trinitarian word, Trinitarian idea, comes to be. Tertullian, as I said, about 210 AD, he writes this, and he writes this thing, and it's a rebuttal to a heresy by Precius, okay? Precius was this heretic who didn't believe in the divinity of Christ, kind of like Arianism, um, and he wrote this thing called the Adversus Precius, so in Latin, He's writing against Precius. And he writes this. Believe that there is one only God, but under the following dispensation. So under this age, this is what God looks like. He says that this one only God has also a son, his word, who proceeded from himself, by whom all things were made, and without him nothing was made. Him we believe to have been sent by the Father into the Virgin, and to have been born of her, being both man and God. We've talked about that before. That's the hypostatic union, fully man, fully God. The Son of Man and the Son of God, and to have been called by the name of Jesus Christ. We believe him to have suffered, died, and been buried according to the Scriptures, and after he had been raised again by the Father and taken back to heaven, to be sitting at the right hand of the Father, and that he will come to judge the quick and the dead, whom sent also from heaven from the Father, according to his own promise, the Holy Ghost, the paraclete, we've talked about that word a lot lately, the sanctifier of the faith of those who believe in the Father and in the Son and in the Holy Ghost. So, this looks a lot like the Nicene Creed, or some of you, depending on your faith where you grew up, the Apostles' Creed. And you'll see that because they are consistent with one another how the Son and the Holy Ghost proceed from the Father and that they show equal attributes. So Tertullian, long, long ago, was very clear that this Trinitarian idea was coming straight from what they had as the canon, which is what we call the New Testament today. So the early fathers of the church were picking up on that biblical language of the Trinity. We see the consistency for 2,000 years and trying to explain it kind of the best they could, Okay. Look, this is a hard concept to understand, and there's going to be some faith required by you to get your head around it. Um, you know, how do you get your head around something that doesn't exist in our present reality? You can't be Mark and two other people and still be Mark. God can do that, but he's God. He also created the universe. You can't do that either. So, there are things that God can do and God can be that we cannot do or be. And when you've settled on that, you can understand that your faith can take you to places that, you know, your average denier won't do, won't be able to do. So one of the things that I've settled on in me that helps me is that to understand that God, the Father is God, God the Son, Jesus is God, and God the Holy Spirit is God, is that the Bible is clear that they each are referred to as God. Okay, so we'll settle that today, and we'll get to the bottom of that today, and I'll show you tons of biblical evidence. And I'm not even going to scratch the surface, but at some point you're going to get tired of me just reading verses. You're going to go, okay, I get what you're saying. And so what I'm telling you is there's more. There's more. There's more and more evidence. Like if you're at a crime scene and, like, 
you know, the killer's name's written all over everything. His fingerprints is there. His blood's there. There's pictures of him doing it. And you just like, I got it. I got it. I got it. And I'm like, no, I'm going to read you more. I'm going to read you more. I'm going to show you more. There's so much evidence that it is unequivocal. Okay. Now they're all referred to as separate persons as well. And we will get into that a little bit. And I don't expect anybody that's sitting here to go through this study and be like, oh, oh, I get the training now. Oh, I totally understand it because it's impossible to get your head completely around, okay? But you will see that the Bible's very clear. Um, I'm going to reference this, but I don't know how true it is. So, but it's a good statement because it'll help you kind of put yourself at ease. There is a famous theologian, Augustine, if you've heard of him before, and he's sometimes quoted. The reason I say I don't know if it's true is because there's some people that don't know if Augustine actually really said this or not. But he says this, the Trinity, try to understand it and you'll lose your mind. Try to deny it and you'll lose your soul. It's kind of a cool saying if you think about it, though, because what is trying to be conveyed is if you try to wrap your head around this concept and really dig in it, you're never going to be able to do it. You're just going to drive yourself insane. But denying the Trinity is denying the Bible. Okay? So if that makes sense to you, um, I think you can take that quote and make some use of it. But what I don't want you to hear is, if I don't really grasp the concept of the Trinity perfectly, that I'm going to lose my mind. Because as theologians, which we all are, we all study God, we should look into things like this for a couple of reasons. To defend the faith. If somebody asks you, are you Trinitarian? Your answer should be yes. And then if they ask why, you should be able to answer why. Now, if you're like me and you've beat yourself up a lot over the years and you're not very good at remembering biblical addresses, one of the things you could respond with, I've studied the word of God. And there is an abundance of evidence that shows that each one of the three persons of the Trinity is an individual person, but also equal to God. There you go. There's your answer, right? I don't need to walk you through uh, an hour-long lesson. Um, and if you have tools like your phone and the internet, you can obviously walk people through it quite clearly. So I don't think you're actually going to lose your mind. But I think we should really dig in and just see the evidence so that you'll be convinced and that way, when you are conveying the truth to somebody, you go, oh, okay, it's here. It's the truth, right? And then based on that evidence, <clears throat> you'll see that God is truly Trinitarian, and it'll just be easier on you to take faith in that concept. So then, what really needs to be done is to take a look at God first. Who is God? Uh, and his attributes that exist in all three of the persons, and list those out, what the Bible says about each one. So we're going to do that now. And this will give us the reference points we need to support that word Trinity. But before that, we need to do one thing. Let's define what Bible says about there being just one God. This prevents us from sliding into the idea of some sort of polytheism. Right? So, you know, Mormons are polytheistic. I don't know if you knew that or not. But Mormons believe that Jesus is a creating, created being, the brother of Satan, who was sent here as the selected son to save us. And that men, if they become righteous enough, can become gods of their own planets. So they do not believe in one God. Now they'll say, no, 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 we believe in one God, the Father, Elohim, Yahweh. But you can attain Godhood. That means there are multiple gods. Well, God is clear in the text. There's only one God. Not one before him, not one after him. No others exist. Period. Why is this important to the Trinity? Because it means Jesus isn't God 
separate from God the Father, nor is the Holy Spirit separate from him. Does that make sense? They are still unified as one God. So we are a monotheistic, monotheistic religion, one God. So let's go through some texts. There's going to be a lot. So if you do want to throw a note down or something, just put down the address. Don't try to write too fast. We'll start with this one. 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Okay. This is written by Paul. And Paul writes here in 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So God the Father, there is one of. There is also one Jesus. And through that being, all things exist for him. Deuteronomy 6, 4 says this, Hear, as in to listen, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So there is one God. Isaiah 44, 6 says, Thus says the Lord, so this comes from God, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. These are God's words. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Okay? Has anybody ever heard that before? I am the first and I am the last? Does anybody know where that's repeated? It's repeated again in Revelation. And who says, I'm the first and I'm the last? <laughs> Jesus says, I'm the first. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, right? So I am the beginning and the end. I'm the first and the last. So it means I encompass it. I am infinite. Um, I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. So there is nothing equal to our God. James 2.19 says, You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. This is an interesting statement. For people who have <laughs> heretical faiths, or no faith, essentially what we're being told here by James as he writes is, the demons who've completely turned away from God believe that God is one God and in his deity and who he is, the power he has, and they shudder. Yet these heretical religions, they have no problem looking in the face of God and going, you know what, I don't need what the Bible says about you. I can make up what I want about you. And if we wanted to go down that road, which we won't today, it's still all tied to original sin. Remember I've talked about this before? Adam and Eve sit in the garden. God gives them one thing to do. Go populate the planet, name the trees, name the animals, enjoy yourself, have children, walk with me. And at some point they're whispered to that they won't surely die if they eat of the fruit. And they're like, I can do what I want. God does not have that power over me. I won't surely die. This is what the heretics do. I don't need what the word says. I don't need what God says about me. I can do it my way. It's the same sin over and over again. So there are many, many texts that reveal that there's only one God. Does anybody feel like after we've read those few, it's sufficient, right? There's only one God. The Bible has said it numerous times. I can keep going if you want. We can do this all day. One God, one God. We could do it for an hour. But I think this says it enough. It's sufficient for us to understand there's only one God. Next, now, you'll see the word God used through scripture, but I want you to understand this. The word little g God 
is used through scripture in a bunch of other ways. It's used to describe angels. It's used to describe rulers. So sometimes in the text, the heretics will say there were other gods. Yeah, other little g gods. But it doesn't mean God the Father. And the Bible is explicit per either how the word is used, the type of word that's used, or the context, which one of those is God the Father, and which one is God a ruler or an angel. So just to be clear, little g gods is completely different. Grammar makes it clear to us. In the Old Testament, God is referred to in many ways. Okay, we see words like Yahweh, Adonai, Jehovah, and then also referred to by adjectives as well, things like Savior and Redeemer. So even before we see Jesus incarnate on the scene, we see God the Father referred to as our Savior or as our Redeemer. And so now on this side of the cross, does anybody here know who our Savior is? Jesus Christ. So if you're pre-cross, who would you say your Savior is? <laughs> Yahweh, God. Same, per Abba, same person. Or different persons, same God. Okay? That's why they're referred to as the same. Okay? Ancient Israelites referred to God as Yahweh, but Y-H-W-H or Y-H-V-H, depending on what translation you're looking at. There were no vowels at the time. There weren't using vowels in the language, and it was called the Tetragrammaton. It's just because it's just four consonants, the tetragrammaton, four Hebrew letters. It's yod, he, wa, he. Yod, he, wa, he. And the word was so holy that the Jews wouldn't say it, only refer to its consonants because they did not want to blaspheme his name by using it improperly. And what word they would use typically is they would replace it. And you guys have heard this word before. And there are songs sung about it. They would use Adonai. And Adonai just means Lord. So they would call him Lord instead of using his proper name because they did not want to blaspheme. And then if by the time the Bible moves from the Hebrew into the Greek, they would use the word kurios because that's the Greek word, which essentially means Lord, the same thing. But God's name isn't just a name, it actually has a meaning. And it comes from that story of Moses where Moses asks him what his name is. Does anybody remember what God said his actual name was? Two words. I am. God says, I am. And that seems kind of weird because it's not a name like Bill or Mike, right? So it's like, doesn't he have, didn't he name himself like a proper English name like he should have in the 2020s? Well, it's because the word the words I am have a meaning to them that he's trying to explain to his humans his abundance and that he's from nothing that you have created here. In this I am, which we learn from in three Exodus 3.14, it's this really interesting statement that essentially means self-existent or even self-sufficient. <clears throat> so the cool thing is, even if you named that of a human, it would not be true. You see, each one of you in here had to come from a womb. You had to be fed, breastfed or bottle fed. You were fed in order to grow. If you were not, and you know this, you would die. You are not self-sufficient. I think we could even contend that if today your clothes were stripped from you and the trees popped up and you lived in the woods by yourself, very hard to exist on your own if somebody didn't provide something for you to have. And even then, in the greater sense, if the oxygen and the water and the animals to eat and the fruit and the vegetables were not 
given to you from somewhere, you would surely die. You are not self-existent, nor are you self-sufficient. When he says, I am, he's saying, I am completely outside of what you can understand. I am completely self-sufficient. And still in that wraps up that idea of the beginning and the end. Okay. Now here, even a, con a concept outside of the Trinity, it's impossible to even conceive a being that great, but that's who he says he is. And now uh, what we know for sure is that from these texts that there's one God, there's only one God. Now let's look at each one of the persons. We're going to go faster now, but talk about each one in the Trinity. We'll start with God, the father. So God, the father, the, what we call the first person of the Trinity. So is God referred to as the father in the Bible? Yes. Right. So the answer is yes. Okay. There's an abundance of material that shows that God is our father. We'll start here. 1 Corinthians 8, 6 says this, yet for us, there is one God, one father from whom all things, um, and for whom we exist and one Lord, Jesus Christ from through all things through whom we exist. So it's same that we read earlier, 1 Corinthians 8, 6, one God, one father, right? Um, Ephesians 4, 6, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So he is the ruler of everything. Matthew 23, 9 says, and call no man your father on earth for you have one father who is in heaven. Isaiah 6, 48, but now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are the work of your hand. Malachi 2, 10 says, have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Isaiah 63, 16, for you are our father. Through, uh, though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our father, our redeemer from of old is your name. So here we see not only his name, father, but also that adjective redeemer all put within one space, which means he is not only the father, he's the one who pays for us. He covers our sin. He rescues us from our own trepidation. So he is not just the one creator, father, person. He's also the one who is going to rescue us. 1 Peter 1, 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's also Jesus's Father as well. It says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. John 5, 16 and 17 says, this is Jesus speaking. And Jesus is going to call God his father. He says, my father is working until now and I am working. So they are working together. This is why the Jews, this is straight from the word of God. Listen to this. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, Jesus, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. I'm curious about that one because people who deny the Trinity must deny this verse from John where the Jews essentially are hearing Jesus speak in Aramaic and he's talking about his father in a way that says me and my father, we are the same. 
And the Jews are like, that's blasphemy. So the Jews understood the words that were coming out of Jesus about his nature. Essentially, he's standing in front of them and saying, I am not just the Savior, I am God. That's why they killed him. And we're going to see this in Jesus' words again here in just a minute as we look at God the Son, which is what we're going to cover next. So does the Bible explicitly say that God the Son is also God? So check this out. Isaiah 9.6 says, this is the Christmas verse. You guys have all heard this before if you've been in church for more than a day. For to us a child is born, right? To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Who's the verse talking about? Talking about Jesus. So Jesus has the same attributes as as God, the Father, right? Amazing that it's pointed out to the Jews. So think of the verse we just read before this. Christ is standing in front of the council and he's like, this is who I am. And now they want to kill him because he's saying, I'm God. I'm here. I'm here to sit on David's throne. And they're like, mm, no, we don't want that because the Jews wanted something else. They didn't want a lowly savior. Remember, we've talked about this. <clears throat> In John 1.1, 1, 1, and this is interesting because you go to John 1.1, 1, 1, it's one that other um, cults will contend with, heretical cults will contend with, but you need to look down after John 1.1 1, 1, and you need to line it up with Genesis 1.1 1, 1 as well. So let's look at this really quick. Genesis 1.1 1, 1 says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Okay, in the beginning was the Word. So who is the Word is the question. And we'll get to that in just a second. But the Word, whoever that is, became flesh. Hmm. Well, who was incarnate and became flesh? Jesus Christ. Became flesh and then dwelt among us. So we know the story of Christ. He came here, lived for 33 years, three-year ministry, and then was crucified, died, buried, and resurrected bodily. And the Word was God. So this God who came, was incarnate, became flesh, he was also equal to God. Genesis 1.1 says this, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So John 1.1 said, In the beginning was the Word. So if the Word was in the beginning, and then God created the heavens and the earth in the beginning, then who was there at the beginning? Jesus. And we actually know from a continuation of the reading of Genesis 1, where was the Holy Spirit at the time? Does anyone remember? Hovering over the waters. So, Jesus is there, God the Father is there, and the Holy Spirit are all existent together in Genesis 1 in the creation story. So the Trinity is there as a perfect fellowship creating everything. But in this context of John 1 through Genesis 1, if you skip down to John 1.14, it really kind of puts the lid on all of this because it says this, John 1.14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. Not given grace by the father, not some of the father's truth, not incarnate and then imposed some sort of truth or given a space. He is full of the truth. 
He is full of God. He is God. One of the biggest things that the critics of the Trinity will try to present to us is that Jesus never explicitly said he was God. This is a big one with Muslims. If you have Muslim friends in your circle, some of you guys have been around Muslims. I've spent a large part of my adult life around Muslims. One of the contentions is, Jesus never said he was God. Show me in the book. Okay, let's go there. You know, because this is one of the things, because they don't know the word of God very well. We would pick this up. John 8, 58. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, or depending on your Bible, it might say, verily, verily, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Hmm. Does anybody remember what God said his name was to Moses? He said, I am. So in Greek, this is the term ego, I me. Ego, I me. Ego, I, and I me. I am. I am. The I am that we discussed back when we spoke about Moses, Jesus uses the same name for himself that God uses for himself. Awesome. Here's another one for the critics. John 10, verse 30. I and the Father are one. So we are one. Now, there's another argument that pops up. This is one you'll find from some of the heretics. But there's other places in the Bible where it says you can be one with God. So what do we do with those? Where it says, say, you know, Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 6, 7, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him, insinuating that you can become one with God as well. So either that means that Jesus saying he's one with God just means he's in line with him, or it means that you can somehow become divine. So how do we parse that out? But here's the difference. Context. You got to read the verses around it. You just can't read the one verse. So you see, when Jesus says in John 10 30, I and the father are one, Jesus is talking about God calling the sheep and giving them to Jesus for salvation. He's talking about the nature of being able to save people out of their sin, a divine process that human beings cannot do. You cannot save somebody. I cannot save somebody. The only one that can save them is the one that is set aside, completely holy, and able to pay for sinfulness because they are the perfect spotless lamb. You see, in 1 Corinthians, it's about fleeing sexual immorality. It's a completely different thing. The context isn't even there. You flee sexual immorality as part of your own personal holiness. Now, we know what holiness is. Anybody remember what it means to be holy? It means to be different, set aside, right? So when people ask you or they accuse you, are you holier than thou? You can say, yes. Embrace it. Yeah, I'm holier than thou. I'm set aside by God. Embrace that. It's a good thing. So the context is king here. God um, and Jesus are one. When he says, I and the Father are one, it means one nature. Okay, it doesn't mean that he has just come in line with God's thought process. There's a couple other examples of this, but just always remember, read the verses around something, right? Jesus is also called God. John 20, 28, Thomas calls Jesus, my Lord, my God. Colossians 2, 9, for in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So not part of the deity, but all of the deity exists 
in Jesus Christ, right? Fully man, fully God. Um, Hebrews 1.3 says, this is a little bit of a long book, but this is cool. Um, it says, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is a picture of Christ Jesus who does the work of God, the imprint of the full divine nature. And remember this, when you sit at the right hand of something, it doesn't mean that he's lesser to the Father. In the old Hebrew, the old Israel, remember the son who receives everything from the Father is at the right hand. It's his. It all belongs to him, right? That idea of being the firstborn son. I'm going to finish up the proof for Jesus being God with these points. I'll let you look at them yourself. He's the Old Testament Adonai, or Yahweh, Matthew 22, 42, and 45. Evidence of this uh, being God in, in the baptism in Matthew 28, 19. He's also one with the Father. We talked about that, John 10, 30. He forgives sin. Mark 2, 5 and 7. So this is an interesting one, right? Because Jesus just didn't get sent to pay for the sin. He also has the ability to forgive the sin, which means he has divine qualities. He also accepted worship. Hmm. Well, if there's only one God and only one who's able to accept worship, then it shouldn't be the non-God son. It has to be God. So Jesus Christ accepted worship. Matthew 14, 33. Matthew 28, 9, and John 20, 28, and 29. Jesus makes claims in heaven, John 3, 13. We see his omnipotence in Matthew 28, 18. And this one's pretty interesting. The dead respond to his authority in Luke 7, 14, remember Jesus calls Lazarus out of the grave. And then you all know this story as well about Jesus calming the storm. But nature obeys Jesus' word. Mark 4, 39. So if Jesus is just some other created being and he's not God, he's just some incarnate version of a God-like creature, or he's a spirit baby... You know, how would he have the ability to tell nature what to do? How would he have the ability to call things from back from the dead? And why would anybody worship him if he's not God? So Jesus is clearly God. Any questions on that one? Have we laid it out? Because that was a ton of evidence. Lastly, and not leastly, but we'll go over the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Trinity Okay, so this does not mean that they are not equal. We're just listing them. So God the Father is the first person, God the Father, God the God the Son, Jesus is the second person, then God the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. Let's go over some evidence for how we know the Holy Spirit is also God. Now I don't know about you, but it took years sitting in church to hear somebody actually talk about the Holy Spirit as God. They say it and they'll say Trinity, but nobody ever says, here's some evidence. So this one's really important because we do not recognize the Holy Spirit's work enough in the church, I don't believe. There are the, you know, very, very hyper-charismatics 
that focus just on the Holy Spirit and then forget that there are things like the Bible and order. And then there's kind of the rest of the church, which sets the Holy Spirit kind of aside and doesn't recognize him as a person. Notice I use the word him, not the word it, because the Holy Spirit is not an it. It is a person. He is a person. John 15, 26 says, but when the helper comes, what's that word helper? Somebody knows it. The para paraclete. Okay, the paraclete. You guys have heard that word. When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So the Holy Spirit is a person who can bear witness, right? Tell you about somebody. And he knows God the Father intimately and is the spirit of truth. So if God the Father is truth and the Holy Spirit is truth and can bear witness about the Father, then the intimate relationship there is only one that could be the same being. Matthew 28, 19 says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the... Holy Spirit, all right? So the expectation here for believers is that the Holy Spirit is co-equal with God the Father and God the Son. There, why would you baptize in the name of some thing that does not have equal value to God? And not because it's a way of lifting up the Holy Spirit, but wouldn't that minimize a holy God, Father, to say I can baptize you in the name of the Father and then that other smaller, lesser thing? It doesn't make sense. So we baptize in the name of a triune God. John 14, 26. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So if he can teach you all things, that means he knows all things. And who's the only being that knows all things? God, right? Acts 5 verses 3 and 4, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? <clears throat> okay, so a little context. There's this story in Acts 5 where Ananias, Ananias and Sapphira have this piece of land and people are giving and selling and giving money to the church as the church begins to grow. And they have a parcel of land that they sell and they're supposed to give all of the proceeds of that land to the apostles. And what happens is they withhold some of the money for themselves out of greed. And so as they stand there, they're being questioned as to why, you know, if you're saying you're giving this all, all to me, why are you lying. And this is the response. Peter's response to them is, why has Satan filled your heart? He knows he's lying. So somehow they found out he wasn't telling the truth. And who does he lie to? To lie to the Holy Spirit. Well, that doesn't make much sense. If the Holy Spirit's not God, what difference would it make to lie? Holy Spirit, wouldn't he just say to lie to... Jesus isn't there, right? Jesus is ascended. Why doesn't he just say lie to God? This is light of the Holy Spirit. And keep back for yourself part of the proceeds. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? She's so talking about the land. And after it was sold, 
was it not at your disposal? Now check this out. This is where it all comes full circle. Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Ooh. Okay, so he says at the beginning, you lied to the Holy Spirit. And then he says, as he wraps it up, you've lied to God. So he creates uh, an equality between the Holy Spirit and the God. Genesis 1-2, the earth was, for, uh, was void and without form, and the darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. We brought up this, this up earlier. 2 Corinthians 13, 14, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. <clears throat> so what's happening here is Paul is explaining that the three of them fellowship together. Last verse we'll go over for the day, still about the Holy Spirit says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth for he will not speak on his own authority but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. And this one's an interesting one because now we see that the Holy Spirit doesn't have unique authority on his own, but an authority that comes from the Father who is, because there's order, just like there's order in the church, there's order and headship within the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Not that one is lesser than the other, but you can see order proceed from it where the Holy Spirit just doesn't come up with stuff on his own like he's a separate being, but that it comes from the orderly, unique, triune God before he delivers this truth to us. He doesn't speak on his own authority, but also still is the spirit of truth. So if the truth belongs to the Father, it also belongs to the Holy Spirit. Whew. All right, that's a lot of verses and it's a lot of stuff. And there's a lot more examples. We could have sat here and just read verse after verse after verse. So it blows my mind why a non-Trinitarian could actually say, no, there's not a Trinity. Not each one of them shows the attributes of God because the Bible is clear. Each one of the three persons clearly and explicitly displays attributes of being God. And this is, like I said, it's just scratching the surface. But I think what we've been able to do is take all these verses, and even if we don't fully understand them, say, yes, they're all God. Put them all in one basket, I have to. So these are the questions we're going to answer, and then we'll close. So, is there only one God? Did we make a good case for that? Yes, there's only one God. Is God called the Father? Yes. So does anybody disagree? I mean, if you disagree, like I said, interactive. If you, if you disagree, if we miss something, shout it out. So is God the Father? Yes. So is there biblical evidence based on what we read that Jesus is God, that he is divine? Yes. So we nailed that. Down. Bless you. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then is there evidence that the Holy Spirit is also God? Anybody contend with that? Have a question? All right, so that's the Trinity. So then you can all say, yes, I believe in a triune God because that evidence just lays it out there for you. Now, raise your hand if you can still figure out how three separate things can still all be God. Okay, maybe half hand. Yeah, it's really hard to get your head around. And that's why it goes back to that quote. You could possibly, you know, you could lose your mind if you try to figure it out. But you can see how denial of it would mean have, you'd have to deny every one of those verses and say, I have to set all those aside. So what we'll do is next week, 
is we'll jump into some heresies that show you how it's easy to start parsing them and pulling them apart. And you'll see how some other religions and other cults will pull them apart and create a heresy out of that and how we contend with that. Also how to respond to people. Okay? Let's go to Lord in prayer. Father God, we are thankful for you and we are thankful for your word. It is a useful tool for us not just as the theonoustos, not just as the word of God that pours over us and fills us, but also as a way to educate us, a way to give us the tools that we need to reach others or to answer their questions. That hope that resides inside of us uh, manifests as our testimony, but we are also to gain inform- we're able to gain information that we can share with people to show them why we believe in what we believe. And we're thankful for that, Lord. And we're thankful for this time that we've spent together today and ask that it be sweet incense to you. And we ask for all of our prayers to be answered in the name of our precious and holy Father and in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.